You know, we want to connect truth to reality. Truth to the reality of our families. Not just an idealized or sentimentalism perspective on family. Because our lives have been marinated in a social construct of a sentimentalized common family. Perhaps it would look something like this, right? Where you've got uh, an ideal husband and wife in their happy marriage with a single job that provides an upper middle class life, right? And they have two and a half children, somehow, who are respectful and athletic and kind and well-behaved and evidently not children at all. <laughs> oh, and they have to have a dog, I think. That's the rules. I don't make them. Babe, what do you say? <sighs> Strike out on the dog still. <laughs> Tried. I'll try again someday. <laughs> now, their economic and legal and racial and cultural realities that led to this construct as we know it, right? But our, for our purpose, I want to focus on what God wants for our relationships because the idea of family was his before it was ever ours. And reality, in our church, we don't have common families and uncommon families. We don't have perfect families and imperfect families. We don't have Whole families or broken families. In our church family and in our world, we are all uncommon families. We're all uncommon families. We're all broken, imperfect families. In part because we're all broken, imperfect people. See, we may have daydreamed about a, a knight in shining armor, right? Or a million-dollar family in a million-dollar house, or someone who thinks all your jokes are funny and all your thoughts are brilliant and all your ideas solve everything. We, we may have dreamed about that. We may want the people in our lives to act more like whatever your version is for the common family dream. But there are two problems with this, two problems that result in us having all uncommon families. The first is this. Your family, or the family you wish you had, have you. They have you. I'm going to try to say this with all the grace in the world, but you're a problem. You can all say it back to me. Whoever it was over there, that was a little too loud and eager. Uh, Uh, no, I'm a problem to our family right now, or the family we want to have someday, the family you wish your family behaved like, like, all of our relationships will always have one problematic point of tension, won't they? Us. We will be present in that. Our weaknesses, our insecurities, our preferences, our expectations of exactly how soon after the trash is full, it's going to be taken out, right? Like, all of our things, even worse, our sin, they add up to make us, to make you the picture-perfect person to ruin whatever family we were hoping to be able to experience. Now, of course, your gifts and your strengths and your perspectives and your personality and your interests, all of who you are will also enhance and complement and delight your family as well. 
but we are all part of uncommon families because we are all incapable of bringing perfection to the team. The other reason all of our families are uncommon is your family or the family you wish you had has your heart. Your family or the family you wish you had has your heart. Our families, I mean, they are so instrumental and important to our concept of ourselves. Our families easily become our identity, don't they? They have our heart. Our families define and shape us. Man, they have our heart, and in an ultimate way, they shouldn't have our heart. This is why the people in your home have this profound ability to hurt you, to make you angry, to make you happy, to bring you joy. This is why what your parents never said still haunts you, right? This is why what your spouse did say all those years ago still speaks over your life and steals your joy. This is why how your children are going to be performing feels so stressful to us. This is why the person who isn't in your family yet still seems to define you. I find this to be true. If you're not finding your identity in Christ, you will look for identity in the family you have or in the family that you wish that you had. If you don't find your identity in Christ, you'll find your identity, you'll look for your identity in your family. See, you and I, we allow our parent, our spouse, our children, our singleness, our divorce, our friends, our co-workers, our relationships to be our identity, our source of purpose, the controlling factor in our mood, the reason we wake up or the reason we go to work every day. But our families are broken by sin. They are uncommonly perfect, imperfect rather. And even if they were, that sentimentalized, common, perfect family that we dream about, they still wouldn't be able to fulfill you. So, my problem today, and our problem to look into today is this. How are we supposed to thrive as an uncommon family? How are we supposed to thrive in relationships and life and what we hope to have in relationships and life when we're uncommon people and we're a part of uncommon families? To find our answer, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, we're going to see a lot of people from a lot of families that might be tempting for us to view as the kind of life we want to have, the kind of family we want to have. And all together, whether that's true or not, we are called to a single goal here by the author of Hebrews. But I'll let him, the writer, show us what they're trying to say. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, quite a famous account we jump in right at the very end of what is called sometimes a hall of faith. And it says this. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and were sawn in two and were killed with the sword. I skipped a line there, didn't I? Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawn in two and killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Man. These families, these people, what they got to see by faith, that that seems like the kind of family we want to have. That seems like the kind of people that we would want to have as our common, traditional, aspirational dream, right? Like if there was ever a people or family that got existence right, it's these giants of the faith that did great things and showed great courage and were cataloged here in this hall of faith. But their stories, if you've been around, if you know some of these names and recognize their story, you'll know their stories are often uncommonly sad in moments and in years. Go down the list, you'll see broken families and shameful decisions and seasons of sin. And any of the stories we know anything about, we know that these were uncommon people that lived in uncommon families, that Gideon, who seemed to live in fearful hiding and allowed his heart to be content with his people living in idolatry until God showed up specifically and asked him to do otherwise. Barak, who wasn't the bold leader he could have been since God was going before him and a God-fearing woman, Deborah, was serving the nation with him. And Samson, he was a liar, a womanizer prone to pride and arrogance. We've got David, who murdered and abused his power to sin sexually, and his own children then tried to murder him and take over the kingdom. Listen, these are are not picture-perfect families. We're all uncommon families. But God was using them. And it goes on to say, in verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, wait, what's this? We have something to do with their being made perfect? No. No, not not us. What, What happened during our time, this writer... During this writer's life, God had provided something better than what these historical figures knew. God had provided Jesus during this author's lifetime, during this generation's existence. Jesus came and lived and died and rose so that apart from what God provided for us, the writer is saying, what happened during their time, they wouldn't have been able to have faith that results in life. You know... God has had one plan throughout all of history, throughout all of time, for humanity to be made right with him. It's always been Jesus. 
always been Jesus. These heroes who lived before Jesus, their object of faith that God was going to provide the Messiah is what saved them, is what made them perfect before God. Just as the same as our faith is that God has already provided the Messiah. Jesus has always been the only one who saves and makes our families right with God. So the author points to that and then says this as an instruction to all the listeners alongside all these historic heroes of uncommon families. He says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which leans, clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, what are we learning about an uncommon family here? We have an encouragement that along with these broken, uncommon families of Times past, we are called to be a gospelized family. We are called to be a gospelized family, a, a family of people, a collection of people who are defined not by the way their relationships complete them or succeed, not by the things they are able to do in life, but instead by the way they are made new by Jesus, and the way they embark on a life that's modeled after his ways. They're called, we're called to be gospelized people. We're called to be a gospelized family. I want to look closer at that here in this passage, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. What's it mean to be a gospelized family? The writer says this, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, this great cloud of people who were uncommon people, who were imperfect people, who had imperfect families, just, just like us, come to think of it, alongside of them, following their lead, with the same object of faith, we, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Then he says, Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Alongside these uncommon families, we, an uncommon person in our uncommon families, ought to cast off our sin and look to Jesus, who is our gospel hope. We're called to be a gospelized family, and that starts with a gospel-centered identity. Today we're setting up the base for what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. All the specific tips and, and ideas and accounts for how people relate to each other are all built off of this idea that we ought to be defined by the gospel first and foremost. And that starts with having a gospel-centered identity. A gospel-centered identity is the ethos, it's the mindset of a person who's made alive by Jesus and who continues to find their life in Jesus. They're made alive by Jesus and they're continuing to look to him to find their life in the one who brought them to life. 
brought to life, continuing to find their life in Jesus. And here in this passage, we can see what we see echoed throughout the rest of Scripture, that being made alive starts with repenting of sin, throwing off the sin that weighs us down. I mean, remember, one of the key problems with your common family dream is it's you. It's, it's me. It's our imperfection that we bring to the equation. It's our sin. We're a problem because of our sin. And we're not just a problem to our families. We're a problem to our eternal relationship with our creator. I don't think I need to spend time convincing you that not only are you missing something, not only are we all missing something in life apart from Jesus, but we're not even able to competently conquer our own biggest problem in the way of pursuing whatever it is you might try in order to find meaning. But to have a gospelized family, a, a gospel-centered identity, we start by laying aside our sin, which clings to us so closely. We admit our sin to God and agree with him about what our sin means, that we're separated from him. And then we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We trust that Jesus died on the cross in our place and for our sin. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then believing we have life in his name on account of his work for us. That's how we're made alive with Jesus. And as we think about the need to have a gospel-centered identity, we all have a question to ask then. Are you alive? Do you have a gospel identity? And it may be that God is stirring in your heart and your mind is racing and you're thinking, I want that. I want to be alive. Friend, I want you to know that God can make you alive because what Jesus has done for you, no matter how you feel, your life defines you. We pray that you follow where God is leading you into a gospel-formed identity. That's made alive. But now we also see that we need to continue to find our life in him. A gospel-shaped identity is someone who's come alive in Jesus, but also continues to look to Jesus, continues to find their life in Jesus. They're evaluating their life and assessing their worth and fixing their eyes on Jesus. Still, he's who we look to. His work is what we allow to define and shape us at every turn and in every relationship and in every conversation. Isn't it good to know, Christian, that God's presence with us and provision for us are so full. They are so faithful. They are so complete that in Christ, we really do come to our family status with everything we need. With everything we need. Isn't it good to know that because Jesus gives us life overflowing, we're freed from looking for life from our spouse, from our children's behavior, from our children's success. Isn't it good to know that because we are the children of God, we have reason to continue even in our most, most disastrous parenting day, even in our worst marriage failure, 
Isn't it good to know that as Jesus fully satisfies our heart, we don't have to ask our friends to provide that satisfaction for us. It really is the completeness of the work of Jesus for us that frees us from coming to our relationships needy and exhausted and discouraged and asking our tribe to give us day in and day out something that they could never actually give us in the first place. So the question for the moment is, are you experiencing that kind of freedom in your family? Are you experiencing a gospel-centered identity? Called to be a gospelized family here. This is what the author calls us to, and it includes having a gospel-centered identity. A gospelized family also includes having a gospel-shaped culture in our lives, in our families. You know, there's a phrase I've been avoiding here in this passage. It's when the author says in verse 1, let us run with endurance. Let us keep running the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. You know, I think it's fair to take from this passage that we're called to live a life that's obedient, that has perseverance. But I want to apply that in a different, maybe specific direction here. Because the gospel isn't only something that we know and believe. It changes the tone and attitude of culture of how that we live, how we relate to others. The gospel shapes the way we live, the way we run. It gives us the ability to have a race, to finish a race, to keep going on a race, looking to Jesus who's done enough for us on the cross. And that changes the way we run that race, the the way we live that life, the way we have that family relationship. In that sense, the gospel should not just shape what we know. But also it should shape the culture of how our families and relationships operate. I'll say it this way. We can unsay with the culture of our family and relationships what we say to those families and relationships about what we believe. We can unsay with the culture of our families what we say to our family about the gospel. We can Teach doctrine that is true and then live and treat them in a way that unsays all of that. I was interacting with Rebecca Douglas this week about this concept and she said it this way. Because God has extended grace to us broken people. We can live with our broken family with grace. That same grace is what we give, that we receive. The same love that we received is what we give, and on down it goes. I'm sure we're thinking, what does a gospel culture look like? I, I immediately think of the fruit of the Spirit. That, that it ought to be what kind of defines the way we're interacting with others, and maybe we just select some of those themes. A gospel-shaped culture would look something like love in moments of dislike. Love in moments of dislike. You know, a philosopher once said, uh, hate is a strong word, but I really, really, really don't like you. The plain white tees may not be 
the most prominent philosophers of our life. But in our relationships, I think sometimes that idea rings true. But God would say to us, like he did in 1 John, that we love because he first loved us. We love, even in moments of dislike. A gospel-shaped culture looks like peace. Peace in moments even of failure. Peace in moments of failure. I think of 2 Corinthians 13, which says, Finally, brothers, rejoice and aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. This is gospel doctrine that gets applied into a, a life and into behavior, which becomes a gospel culture in a church. Yes, in relationships, definitely in your family, absolutely. Peace in moments of failure. Man, it's easy when, to let the failures of others control us, to let the failures of others manipulate us, to let our own failures shout over our souls day in and day out. But when a gospel identity has made us alive, even the successes of our fam failures, sorry, even the successes of our family, let alone our failures, don't get to define us. It's God, it's his love, and it's his peace on the cross that he provided for us that defines us. We, ha we can have peace, we can make peace, even in moments of failures, because we're looking to that gospelized identity. And I I look at this verse and I see some other themes here. The rejoicing and the restoration. That, that jumps into our next idea is that we can have reconciliation in moments of conflict in a gospel-shaped culture. We can have reconciliation in moments of conflict. Because we've been reconciled to God. Right? We, uncommonly rebellious and broken people, have been reconciled to God by God. And so proportionately, we are eager and happy in a gospel-shaped culture to, to be reconciled to others. Even when there's conflict, we can have joy. We rejoice, right? We can have joy in moments of sadness. Joy in moments of sadness because happiness, happiness is what, it probably is what happens to you, right? Happiness comes at times from what happens to you, but joy is rooted in something different. It's rooted in the gospel. Every family or family you wish you had, they're going to trigger sadness and hardships, but there's no circumstance that can rob us of our joy when we know that the key to our present welfare and our future ultimate hope is the gospel. It lies in what Christ has done for us alone. It lies in the fact that God has created us good in the beginning and wants us to be made new again and loves us and has called us and knows us. That's what gives us joy every day. Gospel-shaped culture leads to grace in moments of frustration. Believers, friends, let's cultivate a relational dynamic where our homes and our friendships and our families are a safe place, even to mess up. Where hints of our God of grace can be seen, even in our families' moments of tension. There's enough hostility and resentment and sarcasm and biting humor and antagonism in the world. Our home should be a retreat, should feel different than that, where hurting can find comfort and healing. And the gospel-shaped culture looks like service and moments of responsibility. 
where there's stuff to be done, there's a life to be lived, and we have our own interests, sure. But a gospel-shaped culture looks like service and moments of responsibility. Following Jesus' example, which we see, right, in Philippians, we're called to let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. A gospel-shaped culture should be filled with acts of kindness and respect and humility and service and love. Where, it's where husbands and wives learn that serving each other is actually serving Christ. It's where kids see that the mundane duties of laundry and housekeeping and lawn mowing, those are built ultimately on an identity, an attitude of service, of selflessness, and that is sacred in the end. And the gospel-shaped culture also looks like Hope. Hope in moments of apathy. Isn't that what love is? It always hopes. Gospel-fueled love hopes. Maybe this is what we're getting at. The ultimate reality of the universe is the glorious goodness of God. We get to experience that through the gospel. So church, let's cultivate families and relationships where it's easy, it's simple, it's obvious for people to see as they look at us, as they experience life with us, as we interact with them, that our God is good and glorious. That ought to be the most obvious takeaway from them. They they might think, man, they've got strange hobbies. Like, I don't get it. But I walk away from my time with them thinking, I think God is good and glorious. My, my parents, right, like they've they got these expectations and, and these rules or, or these things, but the way they communicate them, the way I am loved and forgiven and talked to, man, like I can be confident that my God is good and glorious. We're called to be a gospelized Family looking to Jesus through every part of this race, paced and freed by his sufficient rescue. Isn't that a better way to experience family? Isn't that a better picture for our relationships? In a different way then to leverage some word play, a gospelized family is an uncommon family. A gospelized family is an uncommon family in the world today. It's different than the way that those without Jesus get to do family, can even possibly do family. I think of Pastor Scott shared with us some months ago in First Peter, that we are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles. Uncommon, right? Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. They look at you, they want to be against you, but they can't help walking away saying, I think God is glorious. Belief in the gospel makes us a new nation, a new people, a new family. And we're sojourners, we're exiles, we're uncommon to the people around us. So a gospel-centered, gospel-cultured family will feel like exiles in a culture that ignores and refuses God. It will be an uncommon family compared to those who are dead in their sins and not freed from their selflessness and trying to find purpose out of their relationships in life. But through the gospel, we have this new spiritual family. We have spiritual mothers and fathers, and we have adopted spiritual sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. We're all still broken by sin, but we're now made alive, and we're now striving for Christ-likeness. And in Christ, then, those who don't have that physical family have a gospel-made family. So for each believer, then, They're an uncommon person, yes. And they perhaps live with an uncommon family. But they've become an uncommon person through the gospel and a family that is uncommon because of the gospel, which belongs to to an uncommon church, all because of the uncommon and incomparable love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, today, Uncommon family. Having been uncommonly loved, unexpectedly called, uncommonly freed, we now purposefully together remember the founder and protector, provider, perfecter of our faith. We remember him through communion. I invite you to grab your elements. We gather for communion a meal, a family meal, So that we together can proclaim the body and the blood, the gospel of Jesus to our hearts and to each other. So it's a family meal for us. And if you've repented of your sin, if you've believed the gospel, if the gospel has given you a new identity, I invite you with me today to take some time and reflect on your life, on your heart, on your God. To repent of sin, to throw off those identities, those family relationships perhaps that we cling to so easily that we depend on, we look to instead of looking to Jesus and instead to look to him. Our identity made new, bringing us into a family made new.